Welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Osband. Our daf of the day, Masachet Yevamot, daf nun bet, page fifty-two. Now, I want to talk about a tangent. Actually, we're talking the the daf talks about a piece in the Mishnah about um, when you have the mitzvah of yibum, and it, it goes. It talks about you know when you've got ma'amar. I'll read this. The line from the Mishnah is asat ma'amar uval uval harezu kmitzvata. Right, the uh, Yavam who does Ma'amar, this betrothal for, for Yibum, and then sleeps with the Yavama. So then it's as if it's the mitzvah, right? So that's from the Mishnah already discussed, at least, you know, to some degree. Um, and I want to now jump to what happens. There's a whole discussion here about, you know, isn't it the case, don't we have a bright of a Hatanya loke? Isn't it the case that a Yavam who sleeps with the Yavama without Ma'amar? Is supposed to get malkot, get flogged, whipped, whatever lashes, um, and then the Gemara address, addresses that and says makat marjut midrabanan. It's rabbinic lashes, which, by the way, hurt the same as regular lashes. Don't write the lashes, meaning it's the same physical experience, but the reason for them is a drabanan level as opposed to a daraita level. And then the Gemara says, the, "What does it mean that it's makat marjut?" Meaning the idea is that the person has violated the rabbinic law. So anytime you have Makat Mardu, really, there's rabbinic law, which gives um, teeth or greater strength to the rabbinic law. What I want to talk about now is really the tangent here that gets into other cases where we have, indeed, Malkot, lashes, um, for what's considered to be, let's call it immodest behavior, for lack of a better term, and it's not a very good term. Um, the Rav me- Right, so the example, the 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 part that I'm calling the tangent opens with this case where Rav would lash, would whip somebody who would fulfill kiddushin, meaning betrothal for the formal act of betrothal that we generally nowadays, I think we only nowadays do with kesef, right? Whether we're going to talk about that's going to be with a ring, let's say, at a wedding ceremony. Um, but the mission in Kiddushin, which we'll get to in some months, right, is says that you could do that. You could have Kiddushin with Kesef or with Shtar, with a document, a written document, attesting to Kiddushin, betrothal, or with Bia, with sexual intercourse. And so here we've got an example of Rav would lash, he would give he would give these Makat Marduk, the whip, the... The, there's no, there's too many words that mean the same thing in this case, I suppose. But he would give the lashes to one who would, in fact, do this betrothal via intercourse. Meaning, the the position here is not specific, specifically yibum, but regular um, people getting married. And so the other examples here are um, one who would be betrothed in a marketplace meaning as opposed to at a, in a home or in, I don't know what, a proper office. I don't know. The idea of getting betrothed in the marketplace was considered, um, you know, kind of a flagrant disregard for societal norms or somehow loose behavior, right? And then man de mekadesh beloshiduche, where somebody who betrothes a woman without there being a proper, um, let's call it a marriage agreement, right? Shiduchem, some kind of plan in advance, then it seems like it's, it's too loose. It's too permissive. It's too, I don't know if they're going to say it, it indicates something that is 
promiscuous. It doesn't sound promiscuous to me. Of course, our whole society now kind of does that. I don't know about betrothal in the marketplace, but certainly, certainly many people get betrothed, engaged without any kind of formal shiduchim. And then the Gemara goes on, Oman Mevatel Gita, he would, the, the person who would um, nullify the bill of divorce, meaning he's got a divorce, he's got a divorce, he sends the divorce, the, the document with Shlichim, let's say, and then he cancels it, you know, so that person also is supposed to get lashes. This, in this case, is not really about um, anything promiscuous or anything like that, but it's, it's you know, going back on the rabbinic um, ordinance of how it's supposed to work, right? And then the suggestion is that then that could actually lead to, like, he cancels the divorce. Does she know he's canceled the divorce? What happens if she gets married to somebody else? Okay, she'll wait the three months, the 90 days and everything like that. She marries somebody else. Does she know that the divorce has been canceled? Because if not, then she's now still considered, a, you know, a wedded woman and any future husband is really an act of adultery. And, I mean, the point is, the rabbinic... Um, edict is to not allow that, right? A man is not supposed technically, he can nullify a divorce after he sent it, but he's not supposed to, and if he does send it, then he's supposed to get lashes. And likewise, one who um, um, will preemptively invalidate the divorce. Um, so then again, like, the people, he's going to tell everybody that, like, he's not really giving the divorce that he wants to, it's not really his own free will, it's not really anything he wants to do so that when he's done it, he sent it ahead of himself or whatever, but he's also canceled it before it's even um, given. And that is presumably a different kind of, you know, the, the question of at what point is the wife going to think that she is formally divorced and what, what, what point is she not? The concern here is again, that this is misleading to her. It could lead her into wrongdoing, not of her own doing, but because of this kind of nullification in advance. And again, it's a it's a defiance in the face of the rabbinic decree. He gets Makat Mardut. And lastly, I don't know if it's really lastly, Oman de Fakir Shlichad Rabbanan, one who is um, um, treats a, a messenger of the sages with disrespect. Uman de Shai Shamta de Rabbanan Alei Tlatin Yomin so, meaning the point is that if you show disrespect to the messenger of the scholars, then it's as if you're showing disrespect to the scholars themselves, meaning Chazal themselves, right? So Chazal have a decree that if you are disrespectful to the messenger of Chazal, then Chazal will give you lashes, which sounds very self-serving, but I think on the other hand, it's really presumably useful for the sake of keeping order and and also establishing, you know, the the authority of of the Chazal themselves. Um, likewise, somebody who is excommunicated for thirty days and doesn't go to ask, you know, we talked about this. I think in Sachem, the idea of getting petitioning that you could be, um, you could have the excommunication removed right after the. Maybe it wasn't Sachem. We definitely talked about it in some place, some one of the earlier Masachot in Moed, where one where the Somebody who has been excommunicated needs to come forward and ask to be to be, uh, to be pardoned, but for the excommunication to be removed, um, which is, you know, on the assumption that he's also corrected whatever misbehavior got the excommunication put into place. But the point is that somebody who doesn't even ask for the excommunication to be removed is clearly kind of like sunk in his own disrespect. Um, 
Okay, there are a few other cases here. As I said, I wasn't so sure that that was the last one. It's not the exact last one, but it's fine for our purposes. What I find interesting here is, as I've now mentioned, right, this idea that Chazal are using lashes as a punishment. Um, they're, they're using their right to to flog somebody um, as a means of establishing their authority, specifically for things that kind of fly in the face of either social decorum or the respect due the sages themselves. Meaning it's not, it's clear that it's not supposed to be wielded, um, you know, flippantly. It's not, it's not like a, it's not the, the cases here are not designed to set somebody up in a cruel way to be flogged, but in a way to make a point that people should conduct themselves better and, and, I suppose, you know, corporal punishment is one way to help people get there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting digression about uh, Malkus. I don't think we've spent a lot of time talking about Malkus on this podcast yet. Um, and the fact that there was this type of corporal punishment, I think is like a piece of halakha that's not well under, well, just not well known. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we'll get there in the Zikin, right? When we get to the the punishments kinds of masachtot, I think also, you know, the same way that there are, I don't know what, carbonot that we don't like to think about, corporal punishment is not very, um, it's not very PC in all, for our lives. Like, I don't just mean PC, meaning it's very foreign to a Western democracy in yeah, terms of punishment. Would, you know. Right. I would agree with that. So uh, I'm going to move on to, it's really the next section here. Um, which we've been talking about Ma'amar a lot, but now we're going to get into the specifics of how Ma'amar was done. And we said Ma'amar was sort of, I think, Chazal's way of making Yibam a little uh, more tasteful because we know that Yibam really just is that the Avam and the Avama basically consummate their relationship and therefore they, they're now married. Um, and we'll get into more when we talk about Kedushin that actually... Uh, uh, consummation of a sexual relationship is actually one of the ways that you can get married, although Chazal basically says you can't do that. Uh, so uh, not even when we're talking about even just regular Kedushin. So uh, Tanu Rabbanam, we have a Brisa here. Kate said Ma'amar. How is Ma'amar done? Natan la kesef o shavak kesef. So he gives her money or the equivalent of money, right? Which is basically uh, what we do today, right? Uh, uh, a ring is given that has to be equivalent to Shava Pruta. And, um, you know, and then he probably would say something like, which is what the commentators uh, add in here. Ubishtar um, Ketzad. And with the document, how is it done? Ubishtar Ketzad, Ketzad Amrinan. So the Gemara is bothered by this question and it says, um, what do you mean with a star? We've already taught this before. And again, we're going to see this more in, uh, in Kedushan, right? Ketzad Amrinan, Katabla Al Niar, Al Hacheret, right? If he wrote it to her on paper or on uh, on earthenware, um, even if the value of that paper of earthenware is not a shava pruta, right? It doesn't have a real monetary value, but he just writes, he just has to write, you are betrothed to me. It is considered to be um, uh, effective. So in other words, this document um, uh, is effective not because of its monetary value, that it would be Shava Pruta, um, because, uh, you know, but rather because of the words that are written on it. And so the Gemara is 
sort of bothered by this question because they're like, we know these questions. Like we're just basically saying Ma'amar is exactly the way that you could do Kedushin with a star. So they want to know why are they asking about Ketzad Bishtar? Amar Abai. So Abai says, no, what it means here is different. And so he really has a very interesting chiddush here and has a whole different way of looking at it. It's not the star of Kedushin, right? Um, it's actually that um, it's uh, it's that it's that she would get a ketubah actually here um, and that that's the ketubah that they want to talk about. And then he gives the text for what that could do, well, or the Gemara, right? Katavla, right? What would that ketubah text be? Ana Poloni Bar Poloni, Kabalit Yat Poloni Yvamati Alai, right? So you would write, I so and so, son and so and so have accepted so and so, my Yavama upon me, Lazun Ula Parnasa Kara'ui, to feed and to maintain her, right, in a proper manner. Ubilvachitihe Kitubata al Nisahe Baala Harishon. As long, right, but her contract, her marriage contract, is still payable from the property of her first husband and not from the Yavam, which we saw before is an interesting thing because in a way, this marriage, she's sort of in between, right? She's, yes, she's married to the second husband. Yes, she's married to the brother, but her support actually comes from uh, the first marriage. And the Gemara, remember, explained that before uh, because it sort of takes, otherwise everybody would sort of want to do chalitza, right? So th- this is sort of a way to encourage Yibam. Be'is le'lav mirishon, Let's say she doesn't, you know, the first husband didn't actually have property, right? Or uh, didn't actually have a way that she could support her. So then the rabbis instituted that she actually gets her ketubah from her second husband. So that she won't be that he could like basically easily uh, divorce her, that there has to be some sort of financial penalty uh, for getting divorced. And so this passage is interesting to me because I think we're seeing some of the protective measures that Chazal put in to make Yibam uh, a little bit safer and, and, and to fit into kind of the society that they want to create, right? That we want there to be some form of Kedushan, even though Minat Torah, it's not required at all. And now we went through the details of it and we see that it's basically just the regular Kedushan that we'll learn more about when we get to myself the Kedushan. But not even that. Now we're introduced to the idea that even a ketubah needed to be drawn up, that she really financially, the Yavama, needed to legally be protected. We'll give the Yavam that that comes from the dead brother's property. But if he didn't have that property, it's still going to be on him uh, to make sure that she is maintained uh, financially. And so as much as I think the concept of Yibam um doesn't necessarily sit well or is confusing or com- complex to us modern learners. I think through this passage, we really see um, that, um, you know, how Chazal sort of went out of their way, I think, to protect women. So as much as, let's say, we found some of this misogynistic masachat, today I'm not feeling that way. I think Chazal have really proven themselves here. I think also there's a key point to keep in mind that any time that we're dealing with these kind of biblically mandated mitzvot that have to do with bigger legal system issues, right? Which is really what marriage is. And therefore, by extension, what evil becomes, you know, there's there has to be um, an involvement on the Chazal level in addition to the Torah level. And, you know, it's so easy for people to be dismissive of 
you know, and, and I, I'm, I don't know about you, Yordan, I certainly hear this now and again, you know, oh, but it's just the rabbis. I mean, just the rabbis, like the system in the Torah, the text of the mitzvot kind of requires there to be more than what the biblical mitzvot articulate. So I think that this is a good example of where they kind of work hand in hand to, to make sure that the Torah level thing becomes what it's going to work in their society recognizing that our society is still a bit different from that, but still, you know, it's, it's, this is what rabbis today do as well in terms of, you know, applying everything that we know and keeping up all the halacha as it's been passed down um, and still recognizing you have two people standing before you, you have to deal with a real life case. Yeah. um, And I, you look, and I think it's also, see, I think if Bamos is really a great, Masacha that shows us sort of the process of halacha. Like, how do we take something that is in the Torah and it sort of gets adapted or evolved uh, through chazal? I don't think we've seen that in another masacha in the way that we have for, for uh, in Yavamos. Um, I mean, again, I'm going to have to mention Erevin because. But oh, I, I knew you were going to say Erevin, but I and I almost said this when I made my statement. The <laughs> difference is Erevin is not taking a de'oraisa and then adapting it to Rabbanan. Like that's the difference. It's totally rabbinic. Right. I agree with you. I do agree and with that's you. What and I, I think th- is, so it's a different type of rabbinic flex. And that's right. What I and I think that, Reuben yeah, I think is that. one type of rabbinic approach. Yavamos is a different type. Yavamos is the interplay between the de'oraisa and the de'rabbanan. How does the rabbis modify a halacha to a way that either makes it more palatable or more safe or whatever it or is? Livable. Or more livable. Not, right. You know, I think that's the, the word. Text it makes the it more does not always, the text of the Torah does not always include enough information even to understand right. how is it supposed to be applied. And if anybody had any questions about how Yibum is supposed to be applied, you know, we direct you to all of our word problems that are exactly that question. Right, trying to figure out exactly how it's going to be applied. So here, with with the issue of betrothal and and setting it up to be a more robust system than simply, you know, go to, you know, I think that there's a lot of, as you articulated, you know, there's a lot of um, value laden establishment going on in this process. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgin website. Let us know what you thought about this stop on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.